I'm glad you're with us this morning. Again, my name is Robert, one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and we are continuing on this morning in our walk through the entirety of God's Word this year. I know some of you probably hoped that I would abandon course, uh, that after going through only one chapter of the entire Bible in the last couple of weeks that I would just realize we're not going to do it, uh, but I am not abandoning ship. We are still going through the entire Bible this year. And we're doing it with an eye towards looking at and understanding God's singular story that he has written throughout the entire Bible. Through all 66 books, all 1,500 years in which they were written, three different languages, they all tell a singular story. It's a story of God's glory and God's glorious love and his redemption. And so this year, we're going to look at the entire Bible and we're going to look at how God tells that story through the entire Bible. And we've taken our time so far. One week we did 10 words, three propositions. And the next week we did one chapter. This week we're going to continue on in one chapter. Uh, But taking our time in these beginning parts of the Bible, like we said last week, isn't a waste of time. Uh, No words have shaped human civilization more than the beginning words of God's Bible, of God's Word. And so we're taking our time in the beginning of the series to read these words and to understand these words, in particular try to understand these words, how they would have been understood by those who first heard them. And if you remember, the first people who heard these words in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and on, uh, they were the redeemed people of God, those who had spent over 400 plus years in slavery in Egypt, having only heard stories through the generations of the God of their forefathers, or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but had been familiar and intimately familiar with the gods of the nations and the gods of the Egyptians. And then all of a sudden, this God uses his man Moses, who we'll learn more about in the coming weeks to lead them out of slavery by his mighty hand, by God's mighty hand, to part the waters, to engulf the armies of pharaohs in those waters and to set them free to worship him and to lead them to the place where he had promised. And here they are on the other side of that sea, wondering who in the world is this God that we've only heard about? And no written revelation of God had been given to the people at this point. They had only heard about him and now they've experienced him in a brand new way. And they're asking, who who is this God? What is he like and why in the world? Why in the world is he doing this with us and for us? This is what's going on in the minds of God's people, the Israelites, as they've been redeemed and they find themselves now free. And God is now revealing himself to Moses. And we're looking at how God is revealing himself to Moses. And what we're being reminded is that God's word, first and foremost, especially here in the beginning, Genesis 1, 2, and and even chapters 3 as we go forward, its chief role is the revelation of God, who he is and what he's like. And he does that by showing us what he's done. God's word is here, especially in Genesis 1 and 2. It's meant to incite worship in us. It's meant to cultivate adoration or worship, incite worship in us. And as it incites worship in us, it's also informing our understanding of who he is and who we are and how we live. And as it incites worship in us and informs us as to who he is and we are, it begins to then instruct us as to how we are to live in this place where he's put us for his glory and ultimately for our fullest joy. That's the role that Genesis chapter 1 and 2 play in, in the life of God's people. It's, and it's, again, it's not an abstract textbook that's dealing with any type of scientific theory. It's about worship. It's about the revelation of who God is. And it's about the right understanding then of who we are. And as we begin to get that, that begins to shape and form how we actually live. So if you've got Bibles open, Genesis chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, Genesis chapter 1, let's just do it this way. I've never heard a better description of putting Genesis chapter 1 and 2 together than this. Imagine yourself a filmmaker. Imagine that you are a filmmaker. 
Genesis chapter 1 is like the wide-angle panoramic view of things. It's the camera pulling way back, showing the big scope, the grandeur of the cosmos, the glory of creation, the the big picture. Genesis chapter 2 is the close-up shot. Now Moses, now the filmmaker, now God, as he's revealing himself through Moses to his people, he's zooming in. He's bringing the camera in. He's bringing the camera closer. He's bringing in that that close-up shot. What God is revealing and what that close-up shot is revealing in Genesis chapter 2 in particular is the story of of mankind. It's the story of God's creation of the man and the woman. From the grandeur of the cosmos and the glory of the cosmos down to the intimate and comforting surroundings of the garden. And what we'll get in Genesis chapter 2, this will be the theme that carries us through this morning. What we get in Genesis chapter 2 is a picture of the original normal. It's a picture of the original normal. It's common in our day and age and in our life when we go through different circumstances and situations in life. When we talk with people about life now, we say, well, we're trying to figure out the new normal, right? Now I've got three kids. Life is different. There's a new normal. And we say, well, there's really no real normal. It's just a new normal. No, God has given us a picture of what the original normal is like. The original normal for which every single one of us was hardwired to desire. And this is what we get in Genesis chapter 2. So go ahead and open it up. And and we're just going to walk through it this morning again with the eye towards God inciting worship in us and and forming understanding that that might shape the way we live. But we're just going to read and we're just going to talk. And if you're a guest with us this morning, that's just my general pattern. I read a little bit, talk a little bit, sometimes talk a lot. Read a little bit and talk a little bit. And my hope this morning is that God will stir in us worship first and foremost for who he is. That's what he's after in Genesis 2. So Genesis chapter 2 really starts in verse 4. Again, you should know um, the the chapter headings and and verse numbers in your Bible. Uh, God didn't put them there. Um, And honestly, people have debated throughout the years as to whether or not they should have started Genesis chapter 2, where they did and why they broke it up the way they did. But almost everyone agrees that in a literary structure, Genesis chapter 2 should start in verse 4. And last week, we actually looked at the first three verses. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 this morning. Here's what the word of the Lord says. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So you can begin to see the focus shift. And you see right here in verse 4, the focus going from the cosmos as primary, now down to the earth as being primary. The cosmos was first and the earth was second. Now he's going to deal with the earth first. This is the close-up look at things. Verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So what we're getting just even here in verse 5 is the setting of the stage. And we're getting another look at creation itself. The land is being set. Sin hasn't come. Sin is not caused yet the creation to rebel. We'll learn about that next week. And we know that from this particular verse, in particular, just for those of you that like this kind of stuff, because the the word used there for bush in verse 5 and for small plant are the same words that Moses will use in Genesis chapter 3 to refer to the thorns that come up to fight against man after sin has entered the earth. So what you're seeing here is the fact that God is creating, he's setting the stage for what he's doing, and sin has not yet come into to this picture. The rivers are flowing, it's ready for life, and all we need now is for the main characters, man and for woman, to come out onto the stage. And now Moses 
This is going to zoom the lens in a little bit tighter. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. First thing to notice in verse 7. You are God-formed. You are God-formed. God formed the man of the dust of the ground. And this is important. We touched on this last week, and I won't take a lot of time with it this week either. This is important because in today's day and age, there are hypotheses all around us. They don't come from any one particular place anymore. They come all around us that tell us that nothing made everything. That the impersonal somehow managed to create the personal. That that which was actually lifeless has now been able to create life. This is the hypothesis that narrates the story of which many of us try to figure out who we are in. Remember, we've said one of the big questions hanging over us throughout this entire series is, is which story is going to narrate your life? Which grand story is going to shape the way you understand your story? It's not going to be whether or not your story and your understanding of your life and your place is going to be shaped by something else, by some other story. It's which one? God starts right here, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and says, you are formed by God. That which was lifeless has not somehow figured out how to create life. You come from God with intention, with plan, with design. Not just formed from God, but formed, as we saw last week, in his image and likeness. You're not just the result of God's intentional, personal plan, but he has given you and instilled in you a dignity and a value and a purpose and a worth. This is how God begins to tell the story of man. The living God, the living God made life. And the picture, just in the very first part of of verse 7, is that God is intimately involved in the making of life. And he's not removed from the process. He didn't put a process in place and remove himself, but he's intimately involved in the making of life. This picture here in verse 7 is the same thing we find in Psalms. When David makes much of God in, in worship and in song, he talks about how God was forming him and knitting him together in his mother's womb. This eternal, only necessary, all sufficient, uncreated God, all powerful God, has purposed and formed you. This God speaks other life into existence, other forms into existence, other creation into existence, plants and animals and stars and and moons and birds and and fish. He speaks and and here they are, but he handcrafts human life. He he handcrafts human life. You're God-formed. You're God-formed. You're not here out of nothing for nothing. You're here from God and for God. And that means, as we said last week, that every single human life has the dignity and the value of being created in the image and likeness of God. Every single person. Everyone. Even the person you're wondering about right now in your mind. Whether they be an in-law or a celebrity you read about on the news. Whether it be the person in the cube next to you or the person that cut you off on the traffic this morning. Every single person is God-formed in his image and in his likeness. 
not here out of nothing for nothing, but from God and for God. Every human life is handcrafted by God. You're God-formed, but you're also God-breathed. What he says in verse 7, not only did he form man out of the dust of the ground, not only was he intimately involved in forming and shaping man, but he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Just like God has breathed life into all of his word, that all scripture we read in 1 Timothy is God breathed, so life, so man, so humanity is God breathed as well. Life itself comes from God. And don't miss the picture here. This is an unbelievable picture. It's a a picture of God forming and shaping with his hands out of the dust of the earth, this form, this image of man and his image and likeness, and then slowly pressing his, his lips to man's and breathing into him, breathing into him his very life. So God just kissed, the Puritans say, and life came into man. You and I, we would not be alive. We wouldn't have life if it wasn't for God. If it wasn't for this living God who who intended to create us, who purposed to create us, who formed us with his very hands and then breathed, resuscitated, holy, eternal CPR. He breathed life into us. You are God-formed and you are God-breathed. God took very special care in the making of humanity. You've got to see this in, 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 in this verse. This is what God is trying to communicate, who he is and, and what he's like to his people who are now looking at him as their redeemer and their rescuer. And he, they're hearing about all he's done and they're hearing that they're not the byproduct of some angry battle between these gods that unleash the forces of nature on them when they do wrong things. No, they're the product of the intentional love and purposeful plan of the eternal creator God who breathed into them his very life. What a picture of God's affection and his care and his involvement, not only in creation, but in in you, in in your life. You're the product of God's intentionality, of God's purpose. No other aspect of creation is like this. No other aspect of creation is like man, is like humanity. Humanity. And not only should this begin to incite in us worship, adoration, joy, but it informs us just in a bit of our position. Now, as it incites worship in us for who God is, it also informs our understanding again of who we are. We're reminded even in verse 7 that we come from the dust. We are not God. We are creation, and we came from the dust. There is a lowly position to us when it comes to understanding who we are in relation to who God is. There's a humility that should be cultivated in us when we listen to God's account of who he is and who we are. But at the same time, not only are we formed by God from the dust of the earth, we're also alive by the breath and life of God himself. There's a unique dignity that follows us as well. There should be a humble dignity that begins to grow in us as we understand who he is and then who we are that begins to inform then how we live and how we relate to the world around us, how we relate to God himself, how we relate to other people. This is what God is communicating even in the beginning of his story. Dignified and humble, just by virtue of creation. 
This is who you are, and the person is right next to you. We've got to keep going on. We've got to keep reading. What else is God revealing about himself and this world around us, setting the stage for this story? Verses 8 through 14, here's what we're going to see. Now we've seen God create man. We've seen God create Adam. We've heard of his tender love and care and, and purpose and, and plan here. Now he's going to show us his neighborhood. I wish there was a better way I could describe it, but now in verses 8 through 14, we're going to hear a little bit about Adam's, Adam's neighborhood. And Mr. Rogers' neighborhood had nothing on this, but you, you'll see. Verse 8, the Lord God, this next thing we hear, he planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man who he informed. So God made creation, God prepared it for human life, God made man, God made a beautiful garden, and now God is going to put Adam, he's going to put man in this garden. And do you know what God called this neighborhood? You know what the big sign is on the outside of this neighborhood? You know what Eden means? It means luxury. Eden means delight. It means luxurious delight. God fills this neighborhood for Adam's delight, Adam's joy. Hey, listen to it. Verse 9, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. And it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. And, and Delium and Onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Uh, Adam is living in a neighborhood and in a surrounding that is beyond what we can even conceive. This is God's original normal. You've got to see this. This is God's original normal. But this is not the way that God, or Christianity for that matter, or, or Christians, to be even more specific, are generally portrayed or depicted. God is, first and foremost, for his glory and for your joy. God is not opposed to your joy. Much, much to the dismay of what most people think and want to actually believe about Christians and about God and about Christianity, God is not up in the heavens somewhere trying to figure out how many things he can come up with to deprive you of joy and pleasure in life. That's not what he's about. From the very beginning, as we see in his original normal, God is for your joy. But he is often not depicted that way, and neither are Christians. We're often depicted as, as pleasure-denying, ascetic, joy-bashing people to figure out how miserable of a life can we live on this earth? How guilty can we make everyone else around us feel for whatever measure of joy that they experience, for whatever measure of pleasure they derive out of creation? This is not the way that Genesis 2 depicts God or depicts his people. God made the creation good. It's to be appreciated. It's to be enjoyed for all that God has made it to be. The next verse, verse 15, we see Adam's responsibility in the midst of this pleasure, in the midst of this enjoyment. And we get Adam's, Adam's job description, for lack of a better word. Verse 15 the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And so now God has given Adam the gift of responsibility and the gift of work. Work is good. You may not believe it, but work did not come after the fall. We don't find work for the first time 
in Genesis 4 and on, work came before the fall. Work is good. Responsibility is good. It's, it's from God. God is warning in some sense against even laziness and abuse. But what God is purposing Adam to do in particular, what his responsibility is in particular in the midst of this enjoyment, in the midst of this creation, in the midst of this luxurious garden, his responsibility first and foremost is to steward what God has given him. This is his position. This is his responsibility. Adam isn't the creator. Adam isn't the owner. But Adam is simply a steward who is accountable to the creator of this garden, to the owner of this land. Adam is responsible to steward and to cultivate the land. He's responsible to care for the land and to bring out of the land all the inherent goodness and beauty that God instilled the land with through his good work and stewardship of the land. And as Adam does what God calls him to do with responsibility and integrity, he reflects the very character of the one who made him. This was Adam's first responsibility. He's to enjoy the land, but he's to steward it. Enjoy it, but not exploit it. And as he did it, he reflected the heart and the character of the one who made him. And so hear this. It won't, I'm not going to stay on this long. Just hear this. Being a responsible, good steward of the environment is nothing new. It's not a new idea. That agenda didn't pop up three political presidential terms ago. It's not just hot now because it's new. Being a good steward of God's world, of the environment, it's simply an act of biblical obedience. Good stewardship of the environment. It's not a political issue. It's not a partisan issue. And we can talk about various policies on another time that, that better reflect our call to steward God's good creation. But it's not a political idea. It's not new. It's been our responsibility since the beginning. God set Adam in this luxurious garden. said, look around and enjoy. Enjoy. Steward it. Enjoy it to my glory and your joy. Care for it. Nurture it. See what beauty I have instilled in it as you do. He's a steward first. He's not the owner, he's not the creator. But he is accountable to the one who is. And as he stewards what God has created, it reflects the love, the care, the intention of the very one who created him and it. That is our responsibility as well. So don't think that the responsibility to be good stewards of the environment is some new, whether what side of the fence you fall on, liberal or conservative idea. It's God's idea first. It's not a partisan thought. You're called to be accountable to steward God's good creation for his glory and for your joy. This is God's original normal. I, I, I typed something in this morning when I was reviewing my notes because I hadn't thought about it throughout the week, but I had to ask myself this, and maybe you'll enjoy this, but have you ever thought about what work was like before the fall? God gave Adam responsibility and he gave him work. He had to cultivate. He had to steward the land. He had to work the land. But have you ever thought about what work was like before the fall? I mean, have you ever imagined work with no frustration? Work with no weariness. Work with no politics. Work with no failure. No mistakes. No personnel issues. Can you even imagine that? Maybe it's just a foretaste of heaven. I don't know. But this was God's original 
normal. Look at verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, something I want you to notice very clearly, very specifically, I think I even underlined it. That word surely is very important when you read these two verses. Surely makes God's command to eat of every tree of the garden his emphatic and primary command. Notice this. It only occurs once in these two verses. God says and commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Some of your translations, excuse me, leave that word out. And it does a massive disservice to understanding who God is in the midst of these two verses. God looks at Adam first and he says, you may surely, emphatically eat of every tree in this garden. Adam, look around. You see all that food, all those fruits, all those trees, all those plants yielding fruits and and vegetables. You see it all. Enjoy it. Eat of it. Enjoy luxury. Enjoy Eden. Just one restriction. Don't eat of that tree. Notice verse 17. God does not say you shall surely not eat. He just says you shall not eat. He doesn't say you shall surely not eat. He's not emphatic about it. God's emphatic statement in verses 16 and 17 for his glory and Adam's joy were about the freedom that Adam had in the place where God had put him. This is what God was ultimately emphatic about. His first word to Adam, the first word we have to Adam is God commanding Adam to eat freely, to enjoy what he had created to enjoy his creator and to enjoy his creation. Surely eat. There's just one thing, just one thing you don't do. Freedom. How many of us have this idea of God first and foremost when we think about him and we think about freedom? We think about joy. His first word, his emphatic command. Eat freely. Eat freely. Enjoy, and as you enjoy, you enjoy to my glory. Why did God slip those two trees in there? I don't know. He doesn't actually tell us why he even put them there in the middle of the garden. Why did he not just leave them out? We don't know. Maybe it was a test. Surely it was some type of test. Is God the greatest giver or the greatest withholder in the universe. God is God. Adam, let's just say Adam understood that, but will he be Adam's God? God is delightful, but will he be Adam's delight? God is defining for Adam what's life-giving and what is life-taking. Will Adam take God's word for it? His emphatic command to Adam was go enjoy. Go enjoy. That's God's original normal. That's God's original normal. So the most profound question that you have to answer this morning is whether or not you see God as the greatest giver or the greatest withholder in the universe. Who is he? 
Who has he revealed himself to be? Do you take him at his word for it? Verse 18. Now we get to what everybody's familiar with. Verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good. The man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Even in this garden, even in Eden, there was something that was wrong. And it's hard to actually imagine that. It's hard to actually feel that. It actually feels funny to say it. I'll be honest with you. It feels funny to stand up here and and say that even in the garden, there seemed to have been something wrong. The closest thing that I can come up with to make a connection for you and in my own heart with it is that remembering a time when I was overseas and I was in Israel and I was having dinner one night on, on the edge of the shore of the Sea of Tiberias. Stunning, stunning place, stunning night. And I was by myself. Aaron was back here in Richmond. And it just seemed like a waste. I, I didn't have someone to enjoy that with. I was just there. and You know, it seemed like I just might as well go home. And that's the closest thing that I could come up with to give you a sense of what's going on here is good, very good, as everything is. There's something that's wrong. Something was missing. Everything was good. But hear this. There was more good still to come. This is what he's communicating. There's more good still to come. I was thinking about this verse in particular as I was praying for our church this week, and I just, I don't know, felt compelled to some degree to communicate to those of you young men in here who are not married yet and just tell you, uh, getting to know you, being around you, many of you live with a practical atheism to some degree when it comes to this verse. You do not believe what God is saying here is true. You do not believe that it's better for you to have someone. It's better for you to be married. You feel like you've got it all figured out. Life is better for you the way that you have it set up. Let me just tell you, the rest of us around you, who know you, who watch you, We agree with God. You're not doing as well as you think. It's not good for you to be alone. I know it sounds funny, but you live with a very functional and practical atheism when it comes to this. It's part of our culture. It's not good for you to be alone. No, we're going to listen to why. Let's just keep going. I'm I'm not going to make this about that, so I'm going to withhold myself here. Um, Verse 19, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. It's an odd thing for God to do next, isn't it? I mean, have you ever thought about that as you read this? And for those of you who haven't been around in a while, I'm, I'm, I'm fond of saying as we read the Bible together, stop and read it like a human. If you've been in church for a long time, you've read so many things, you're so familiar with them, you're always trying to figure out what's being said. What's he trying to say? What's he going to say next? What's really being? Read it as a human. Just read it and imagine the story. God just said it's not good for Adam to be alone, for man to be alone. What do you think the next thing God's going to do is? Nobody would guess, bring the animals to him. This is what he does. He has a reason for it, but 
just read it. The reason I do what I do up here so many times like this is because I just want you to hear it. You just have to read it for what it is. He, he brings the animals to him to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the first thing God does after pronouncing this about Adam is he parades the livestock in front of him. Adam then names and studies each animal. I mean, don't skip by that either. There's a whole nother sermon and all. There are 20, there's a million sermons in this chapter. So when I blow by something, just know that I know that. But have you ever thought about what it took Adam to actually study and give an appropriate name to every animal? What about the intelligence that God gave to man? Talk about the communicable attributes of God being created in his image and likeness, the capacity for intelligence and understanding that mankind has. Adam looked at every animal, studied it, and gave it a name appropriate for it. This took took a long time. It's a lot of work. But this is what Adam is doing. But for him, Moses says, Adam, Adam, he, Adam, did not find a helper that was fit for him. Why did God do this? Here's my, my best interpretation. God was allowing what he had seen to be revealed to Adam himself. God had seen that there was no helper suitable for Adam. Now God was allowing Adam to see what he had already seen and already knew. For him, Moses says, for he, for Adam, in all of the work that he did, knowing and naming these animals, he didn't see a helper suitable for him. One commentator, and I can't remember who it was, I think it was in a commentary, quoting a commentary, and I don't think they wrote down who it was, or I missed it if they did, and I didn't write it down, but one commentator said this, and I love this. If you take nothing away from this, take this. He said, God will not squander his gift on an ungrateful man. God was cultivating in Adam an awareness of what God already knew, that it wasn't good for him to be alone. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with the flesh. Imagine that kind of surgery. Have you ever thought about this? God put him to sleep. Have you ever thought about how God did that? Like, did he look at Adam and talk to Adam? Like, Adam, come lay down. Just trust me. Put your head down. It's Okay. You know, did Adam, he just calls Adam to fall asleep and he's, you know, sat down. I, I don't know. But somehow or another, God, Adam trusted God and God caused Adam to go to sleep. And then God does surgery on Adam. Have you ever thought about how he did that? He didn't just speak or do something. I mean, according to Moses, he actually opened up his flesh and removed a rib because he closed it back. I mean, God could have done anything when he did this, but he chose to open him up and to take out a rib and then close it back. This is just divine surgery. Have you ever thought about this? God as surgeon, not just of your heart, the way we talk about all the time, but literally he's doing surgery and he goes from doing surgery to doing sculpture. Look at verse 22. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. Have you ever just thought about that? I mean, he goes from opening up Adam, removing a piece of the body that he had formed from dust himself. He could have just not made that rib, Right? He could have just held it off on the side, came back to it when he was ready, but no, he made it and he formed, it, he formed Adam with it and then he went and opened him up and took it out, closed him back up and then took that rib. Just like a potter takes clay 
And he took that rib and he formed a woman. Matthew Henry, famous Puritan, said it best. You've heard it at every single wedding you've probably ever been to. He said, Adam was first formed, then Eve. So if man is the head, she is the crown. A crown to her husband, the crown of God's visible creation. The man was dust refined, but the woman was dust double refined. Once removed further from the earth. Woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam. Not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. This, again, is the purposeful, caring, intentionality of your creator. God did surgery on Adam. And from that surgery, he carefully and purposefully and lovingly sculpted a woman. And then the story says he brought her to the man. So just, just bear with me. I love this part. I'm sorry. I'm smiling just thinking about this, but I like, I like to imagine this stuff. You got to imagine it. Just put yourself there. Adam's asleep. He didn't know what's going on. He didn't know God's taking a rib, done surgery, closed him up, made a woman over here. He just got through naming all the animals, just parading animals in front of him, naming him. God puts him to sleep. Now God's got to wake him up. What was it like for God to wake him up? I mean, just, can you imagine what, I mean, I can't wait to hear what God said to wake Adam up, because you know he said something. Yeah, Adam just kind of knocked out of sleep, and son, it's time to get up. I, I've, got, I've got one more, one more thing for you. One more thing to bring to you. I, I think you're going to like this one. <laughs> I mean, you, you just got to imagine what that must have been like for God to do this. I mean, I, I, think, I think you're going to like this one. And don't miss the picture, though. Just as a loving and proud father walks his daughter down the aisle and presents that bride to the groom, God leads this woman to this man, walks her down to Adam, gives her to Adam, and then gets to officiate the first wedding ceremony in history. This is the picture that we have. And what was Adam's response to what God has done? God wakes him up and he brings this woman to him. The first recorded words of humanity. You ever notice that? First recorded words of humanity in the Bible are a spontaneous outburst of song. A spontaneous outburst of lyric, of poetry. God brings this woman to Adam. He had been asleep, taking a nap. And here comes this woman. At last. At last. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. At last. Adam beat Etta James to that. Don't know if you're familiar with that song. That song comes from Genesis 2, evidently. At last, Adam looks at her. 
I wish we just had a picture of that, what it was like. But he looks at her, and in some way that we can understand from what's said here, he identifies with her. And in his identification with her, he recognizes her for who she is and what God has done. And in his identification with her, he doesn't see himself as better than her. He's not threatened by her. She is his equal. This is what he loves about her. Don't miss how this happened. God brought all these animals before him. And Adam got to the place where he could find no helper suitable for him. And God brings this woman to him. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. What he loves about her is that she's his equal, created by God, just as he had been created. Therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Again, very important words in this verse, therefore. That therefore reminds us, it shows us that now Moses is taking what God has revealed to him that's happened in the past. This creation of man, this creation of woman, this giving of the woman to the man, this response of the man to God's gift of a woman. Moses is now taking saying, therefore, therefore, what happened then has implications now. Moses takes God's revelation about the creation of man and woman and the uniting of man and woman by the intention of God and says, here's what that means for you now. He's making application. So he's gone from inciting worship and informing our understanding. Now, hopefully, that then shapes how we live. And this is what Moses says. Because God has done that, created you, formed you purposefully, lovingly, intentionally, brought you together, therefore, A man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Not to be funny, just to be true. It may have very well been the very first couple in all of history, in fact, the very first couple in all of history to never actually have in-law problems. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Just thinking about what God did here. Moses As God has revealed this story, God is revealing himself to Moses, through Moses, to his people. He takes this intentional time right here to instruct us about marriage. What that means is because Moses said this, remember Moses wrote this to the Israelites over here on the other side of the Red Sea, on the other side of Genesis chapter 3. This revealed history of God, this revealed word of God is revealing what had happened prior to where they actually are. So what that means is that this gift of marriage, this thing that God has created and given to his people right here in Genesis chapter 2, still holds true as a privilege for the Israelites then and for us now. We still have this gift, this privilege that God gave them. We still have it now. That's why the Bible says to let marriage be held in honor by all. Because it comes from God. Marriage is not a cultural, social construct. It's not a product of social evolutionary theory. We didn't come up with the institution of marriage to get past some sort of season or sequence of time in the evolution of man. The institutions that man creates don't look like the marriage that God creates. If you want to run through the institutions that man has created, you want to, you want to talk about the institution that man created that defines the very city and state where we live in? 
God's creation of marriage looks nothing like the institution that we created to relate to people. The Bible says the marriage is to be held in honor because it came from God. That means is just a few, a few things, just a few things from verse 24. I just want to run through. Again, we don't have time to, to do what we could do with this. First thing that this means for many of you in here, and I'll talk to the men very specifically first. The first thing that means is that many of you, some of you already married, but those of you who aren't for sure, you need to grow up a little bit. You need to actually grow up a little bit. You need to be able to take care of yourself. Be responsible for yourself. I know you've probably downloaded and iPodded all kinds of sermons about this and heard all kinds of people talk about this and be funny about this. There's no being funny about it. When God instituted marriage, he said that when the man is given a woman by God, by his grace, for his care and for his responsibility, he's to leave his mother and his father. He's to be able to be responsible enough to take care of himself and to take care of the one that God has given him. You've heard the saying, it's, it's not new, it's as old as, as time, that marriage is for men, not for, maybe you don't know it, marriage is for men, not for boys. Boys. The telltale sign that a boy is trying to get married is when he thinks that getting married will make him a man. It's not the way it works. Many a boy has gotten married thinking it will make him a man and he has ruined the lives of women and children for generations. Some of you just need to grow up. Some of you need to get more responsible. Some of you need to take care of yourself. Some of you are already married and this is for you. Are you ready to grow up a little bit? You've got to ask yourself this. I, I'll keep going because that's a whole other sermon in and of itself. Secondly, just verse 24, marriage is to be your highest relational priority in life. Your marriage is to be your highest relational priority in life. I want to say highest priority in life, but that would be secondary to your relationship with God. So it's your highest relational priority here on this earth. It's even higher than the relationship you have with those that you came from. Back then, that meant a lot. To say that your marriage, your relationship with your wife was to be a higher priority than your relationship with the people that gave you life, that you came from, that your family and your mom and your dad and your brothers and your sisters, that meant a lot to say that this woman was to take higher priority than them. But sadly, that doesn't mean much today. We don't have the same kind of sense of responsibility for our families that they had back then. So it's probably more accurate to say your relationship with your wife is a higher priority in your life than your friends, than your boys that you go do all your things with, all your hobbies. Your highest priority of another person on this earth, in this life, it is your wife. Third, for everybody, marriage. Marriage is a one flesh union of complete surrender. It's a relationship, it's more profound than even the relationship between a parent and a child. You are covenanting yourself 
with someone else in a covenant of absolute exclusive loyalty. What that means when they're to become one flesh, yes, it has sexual implications, but what that means in the bigger picture is that there is to be no line of separation or demarcation between you and your spouse. This is what marriage is. You're making a covenant with yourself, with another person of exclusive loyalty in which there is no place for any line of separation or boundary to ever exist between you and that other person. Every other human relationship has some degree of boundaries, has some type of boundary put on it. Marriage is meant by God to be the one place where you say to someone else, I don't allow any boundaries here. There is nothing that's kept from you. I am yours wholly and completely and exclusively till death do us part to the glory of God. This is what marriage is. Is. This is the way that God established marriage for his glory and our joy. Marriage. Marriage puts a barrier around a man and a woman that no one is to trespass and destroys any barrier between that man and woman. That's what God intends when a husband and a wife become one flesh. This is God's original normal. This is the way that God established marriage for his glory and our joy. In fact, later on in God's word, we'll find Jesus himself and Paul both going back to this text and this story to teach about the lasting and exclusive and eternal nature of marriage itself. Marriage is God's creation. He established it here. He intended for one man to marry one woman for all of eternity. That's his original normal. In verse 25, if you can even imagine it, the man and his wife, no boundaries, were both naked and were not ashamed. Nothing to hide. Nothing to protect themselves from, everything to share. No hesitation in the presence of God with innocence, with delight, with joy, with openness, and with complete surrender one to the other and ultimately to him. This is his original normal. The reality of it is we'll learn next week in particular we spoiled it. We spoiled it. We can't hardly think of verse 25. We can't hardly think of what it means. Even for those of you who are married, just those of you who are married, can you even imagine honestly in your heart what it means to stand before your spouse naked and unashamed? Forget physically. What if they just knew everything that was going on in your heart and in your mind? We have a hard time even imagining this. We'll understand why, but here's the reason we have to go so slow and see what God has said in the beginning. We have to see the beauty of what God has done, who he is, how he's revealed himself, if we're going to understand the significance of what we did to it, and if we're going to understand the significance of what he has done to restore it. This is his original normal. We spoiled it, but ultimately God restores it through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
This is the story. This word is the story of God's redemptive plan. It's the story of his love. It's the story of his pursuit of a runaway bride who has spurned his love, spurned his provision, spurned his glory. Yet he's never given up. What we've seen, Genesis 1 and 2. God made each and every single one of you purposefully, intentionally, lovingly, compassionately in his image and in his likeness. Every single person on the planet. And we have to begin to start seeing people that way if we're going to understand the grandeur of what he has done to redeem us and restore us. He had intention and he had design. God not only created each and every single one of us in his image for his glory, God also created the eternal, glorious institution of marriage. We didn't create that. God did. He gave it to us as our highest human relational priority for his glory and ultimately for our joy to be prized and to be honored by all. God is not, is not a cosmic killjoy. Christians are not meant to be pleasure-denying ascetics. He created all of this, all of this to display his glory. He put us there for ultimately, personally, our enjoyment of him and what he's done. And so as we wrap up chapter two, here's what you have to ask yourself and this is what we'll end. Do you see God as the greatest giver or the greatest withholder in the universe? He's declared himself in two chapters to be God. Will he be your God? He's declared himself in two chapters to be delightful, to be joyful, to be the supreme desire and delight. Will he be your delight? In two chapters, God has defined for us what is life-giving and what is life-taking. Are you going to take his word for it? Are you going to take his word for it? The key to this life that God has created us for, it's not being the most brilliant Brilliant, knowledgeable, it's not the key. Obedient is. Trusting his word is. He's God. Will he be your God? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the intention, the purpose, the plan, the pleasure that you had in creating us. Lord, we thank you for the intention and the purpose and the plan you had in rescuing us from ourselves and from our sin and redeeming us to yourself for your glory and our joy. My prayer as we go through these beginning parts of your story is that you would incite worship in our hearts where there had failed to be worshiped, that we would see you for who you are, see your glory, see your grandeur, see your power, but see your compassion and see your care, see your intentionality that you would incite worship in our hearts, that we would see you for who you are, see ourselves for who we are, humble but yet dignified because of your purpose for our lives and that we would trust you to be our God. 
that we could say with confidence, you indeed are the one true, eternal, only necessary, all-sufficient, all-powerful God. You are my God. And I take your word. I trust your word. I surrender to your word. Now, Now create me in the image and likeness of your son for your glory and our joy. Amen.